Hello, everyone. Welcome to the show today. It's me, Jeff. Thank you for tuning in to a Voluntary View. And today we've got a very special guest. We've got Dave Rowland from the Freedom Center of Missouri. So we ran into these guys quite by happenstance. We were Googling Missouri and we found their website is, it's Mo Freedom. <laughs> the, is it .org or .com? MoFreedom.org, yeah. .org. Okay, good. And of course, MO is the postal code for Missouri. So I thought I was hooked immediately with MoFreedom.org. <laughs> but I, I have to give credit to my wife for that one. She's the one who <laughs> realized that this would be the perfect web address for us. So, so mm. Jennifer gets all the credit on that. That's uh, really good. It's really good. So Dave, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Now, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about what the Freedom Center of Missouri is and what it does. Sure. The Freedom Center is a nonprofit, nonpartisan public interest litigation firm. Uh, what that means is we look for cases that will help us move the rule of law in a pro-liberty direction. Um, and we do that by uh, focusing on a handful of issues. We focus on property rights, economic liberty, religious liberty, uh, free speech, um, and then also more general constraints on the power of government. We've got some really excellent provisions of the Missouri Constitution uh, in terms of limiting the size and scope of government. Uh, the real challenge is just getting the courts to enforce those. So that's the task that we've taken upon ourselves is to, to try and, and make use of these excellent, um, uh, these excellent constitutional provisions that we have in the Missouri State Constitution. Hmm. Now, when, you, when you say they're excellent constitutional provisions, what exactly do you mean? Like they limit the power of the state or what? Yes, um, they, they are designed uh, to safeguard individual liberty in many instances, uh, but then also there are specific limitations put on the power of the state in certain regards. Um, one example is that Missouri's protections for the freedom of speech are actually significantly more explicit and more expansive than the First Amendment. Um, so the First Amendment limits itself to saying Congress shall make no law uh, uh, re restricting the free exercise of speech, or rather the, the freedom of speech. But the Missouri Constitution specifies that every citizen has a right to say to communicate whatever they will, no matter by what means, on any subject that they will. Um, so it's more detailed, more expansive than the simple text of the First Amendment. Um, and we have a number of other provisions built into our Constitution that, if interpreted as they're written, uh, basically raise the bar for individual liberty higher than the federal Constitution does. And again, the challenge is getting the to actually follow these, these wonderful written provisions. Um, there are also some fantastic restrictions on the legislature and how they are permitted to adopt laws. So for example, we've got a provision that says that uh, every bill introduced in the legislature can only deal with a single subject and that the original subject of the bill cannot be changed in the course of its passage through the legislature. 
Uh, send out um, omnibus bills or anything like that's that. That's the idea. It's supposed mm-hmm. to stop omnibus bills and also supposed to prevent log rolling, where you see that one particular bill has a lot of support and traction. And so you start tacking on amendments um, that aren't even necessarily related because you know no one wants to vote against the core purpose of this bill. That's what these provisions are designed to do, is to prevent these legislative games, basically. Um, it's been hit or miss as far as how um, effectively the courts have actually applied these. But again, that's why you need a public interest litigation group to come along and start choosing cases strategically to try and push the courts back in the right direction uh, where they've been ignoring uh, the plain meaning and, and intention of these constitutional limitations on government. Does that make sense? It does. It does. So okay. it sounds like the, I keep wanting to say the Mo Freedom, but the, the Missouri Center for Freedom. <laughs> yeah, the Freedom focus, Center. The yeah. free, thank you. There it is, the Freedom Center. They focus on specific cases that are related to individual liberty, et cetera. And they litigate for those in the courts so that would you say like making it easier for the judge to make the right pro-liberty decision or yes okay so um let's give you a little bit of background um the idea of public interest litigation actually goes back into the 19th century um when you had the the 14th amendment adopted and so the protections of the federal constitution have now been applied to the states uh, and you still had a lot of states, not just southern states, but but significantly southern states that were um, imposing black codes on the newly freed slaves. So they were basically treating them as second class citizens. And uh, some folks came up with the idea of a strategic challenge to some of the segregation laws. So they got uh, a man named Homer Plessy, who was a very wealthy businessman in Louisiana, Uh, He was one-eighth African-American and actually could pass as white uh, in in many contexts, but he was technically black, and they had him go and buy a train ticket to sit in the white section of a train. And the whole idea was they knew that he would be told, no, you're not allowed to sit here. You've got to move into a different different carriage. And the whole idea was to say, um, it is unjust and unconstitutional that this person who is well-respected, who could pass as white, is not allowed to sit in the same section as these other Americans. Um, They failed. And it gets up to the U.S. Supreme Court, and in Plessy v. Ferguson, they say, nope, if states want to segregate people by race, that is perfectly okay. So this first effort at public interest litigation was unsuccessful, but it sparked an entire movement afterwards. So in the early 20th century, you had groups like the NAACP, uh, the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, and the ACLU um, deciding that they wanted to take cases like this where they use a specific circumstance to highlight the injustice of a particular law uh, so that you can then get it into the court. It makes it harder for a judge to rule the wrong way when you have a very sympathetic client, when you have a really uh, ugly government villain that you're fighting against, um, and when there is just kind of this drama surrounding the the real world facts of the case. Um, And then even if you end up losing in court, 
having told your story publicly and highlighted this injustice, it creates the opportunity for legislative reform. You know, it, it, so you're fighting the battle not just in the court of law, but also in the court of public opinion. And uh, it took a long time for these strategies by the NAACP and the ACLU to bear fruit, but ultimately you did start seeing shifts in the right direction. So the ACLU, in a very significant sense, created free speech law uh, in the early 19th or early 20th century. Uh, with its set of cases saying, look, the government doesn't get to punish people because they've expressed ideas. Um, the NAACP eventually won Brown versus Board of Education, which says, no, separate is inherently unequal. Segregation cannot be considered constitutional. But that was eight decades after Plessy versus Ferguson. Um, so starting in the 1970s, some conservative and libertarian groups realized the the value of this public interest playbook and so they started trying to use that model to accomplish individual liberty and limits on government in other areas so groups like pacific legal foundation out on the west coast the institute for justice in washington dc uh, and a number of other groups throughout the country start pursuing their own versions of strategic litigation we find people who have been denied the right to earn a living and they have incredibly sympathetic stories to tell. The, the government villains are completely outrageous. And when people hear these stories in the news, they think this law is ridiculous. Surely it's got to be unconstitutional. And so even if we end up losing the case in the courts, we move the needle of public opinion until ultimately, hopefully, we can effect a greater freedom for society, even if we don't necessarily succeed in that primary objective of winning the court case. But that's that's how the public interest strategy really works overall. And, and we're part of that broader movement in public interest law. Oh, that's fantastic. I love the history of that. So but how you say it goes all the way back to the Jim Crow laws, et cetera. But how did the yeah. Freedom mm-hmm. Center of Missouri itself get started? Okay, so uh, Jennifer and I, my wife is Jennifer, uh, she is a Missouri native, and uh, we both worked for the Institute for Justice in Washington, D.C. Um, I was incredibly blessed. That was my first job out of law school, uh, litigating with, with IJ, and uh, Jennifer and I fell in love and decided we were going to get married, and we wanted to get back to one of our home states, and we had the opportunity to come back to Missouri And when we looked around uh, at the landscape here, there were a lot of free market organizations that were working on the policy level. Um, They they did not have a group like IJ that's focused on litigating for individual liberty. And we we thought, you know what, this is our skill set. This is our training. Let's go ahead and let's start an organization that's going to function like IJ to uh, to try and advance the ball for individual liberty in, in the courts. So we started the Freedom Center in 2010, October of 2010, and we have been hard at it for about 11 and a half years now. Uh, we've had some, you know, really phenomenal successes. Uh, we've had some heartbreaking losses, but uh, the long and the short of it is we are we are going to keep at it until hopefully we can put ourselves out of business. Jennifer and I have always said our goal is to make freedom so pervasive that we no longer need a freedom center. Um, 
that may take a while uh, <laughs> just to be honest that, that's okay <laughs> one step at a time but i love that it's, yeah it's a love story as well as a freedom story so that's great <laughs> it is well and and if i could if i could throw in there you know i talked a little bit about the court of public opinion and one of the things that's i think quite unique about what jennifer and i have been able to accomplish with the freedom center uh is we have built incredible goodwill with the media outlets in the state um and that's not entirely uncommon for groups like ours but the extent to which we've built that goodwill really is pretty spectacular so we talk to folks on the conservative side of the spectrum and they recognize and they love the work that we do on property rights and economic liberty and religious liberty and things like that. But they can't get their heads around why we always get such fantastic coverage from these you know, so-called liberal media outlets like the St. Louis Post-Dispatch or the Kansas City Star. And it's because Jennifer and I went out of our way to cultivate that from the very beginning. Uh, we went out of our way to demonstrate that the reason we care about liberty is in large part because it helps people who are dispossessed. It helps people at the lower ends of our economic spectrum. Like liberty provides opportunity. Free markets create the potential for success. And, and when people start to understand that unlike the caricature of libertarians is like these unfeeling, you know, heartless Randians, um, when they see, no, we actually legitimately care about these, these communities that have been oppressed and we see freedom as the way to remedy that oppression, um, they get it. Now, they don't they're not necessarily persuaded on everything at front, but they really appreciate where we're coming from. So um, I'm sure you're aware almost every major city has an alt-weekly that's usually like super, super far left. Um, and, you know, they, it, it's the free paper that's out, you know, all over the streets or whatever. Um, they actually ran a story about how Jennifer and I got married. Um, and it's because we had cultivated this relationship with Danny Wichtenkowski, who is the, the reporter. And um, he put out a call saying, I'm interested in writing a story about how a loss turned into something good. And so I was able to talk to him about how when IJ lost Kilo versus New London, the big imminent domain battle in 2005, that loss is what led Jennifer to come and work at IJ. So if we had not lost that case, we never would have gotten married. The Freedom Center wouldn't exist. And so they, they told this story in this alt-weekly and it was glowing and it, and it express, expressly talked about you know, these two libertarians who are, you know, passionate about property rights and protecting people against losing their homes and businesses. That's, that's why the work that we do is so important, because we're not only focused on the Constitution and the law, we're focused on selling these ideas to people who are not already part of the choir, right? So frequently, uh, people within the liberty movement are content to just talk to and more frequently argue with people who really actually agree with them on almost every issue. And, and Jennifer and I, we consider ourselves to be evangelists for liberty. If we're actually going to accomplish more freedom in our society, we need to convert people. We need to persuade people. 
about the, the benefits of liberty and the wisdom of constitutional limits on government. That's what we're doing. We're out there with our case selection, with the way that we talk about our cases in the media, and with the relationships that we've built, we are selling people on the idea of liberty. That's fantastic. And that's thank you. That's the way you really get to the heart of people, I think, is trying to help the little guy. Because property rights are property rights, but no one cares if you stand up for the property rights of billionaires or millionaires. Exactly. Yeah. But yeah. Um, well, and, and the thing is, and this is something that so frequently gets so a lot for a lot of people on the left, the whole idea of property rights are just an abomination. But they when they look and they can see that it's not usually the big wealthy people or the big corporations that are suffering from eminent domain, they realize, wait a minute, if we look at history, eminent domain was aggressively and explicitly racist in the way that it was used. These communities were trying to destroy their minority groups. They were trying to get rid of what they considered to be lower class citizens. And when you open the eyes of someone on the left to the tremendous injustice and the extreme harm that these minority and poor communities suffered for being deprived of their property rights, it definitely changes their outlook. It doesn't mean that they're going to turn themselves into flag-waving you know, um, anarcho-capitalists, but they start to understand why property rights are actually quite important, especially for poor people. Um, so, so yeah, we think it's, it's really important to, to sell these ideas. Mm, I'd agree. Absolutely. But you mentioned, of course, that not everything can be a success. You mentioned the big loss in eminent yeah. domain with IJ have what's, I'm curious, what's one of the worst losses that the freedom center itself has suffered in court? Oh, the, the, the worst loss that we suffered in court, um, was a couple of years ago. Uh, we challenged, it's a property rights case, we challenged a local government's ordinance that compelled every property owner to devote at least half of their lawn space to turf grass. So our client, I know, right? Yeah, I know. I see the look on your face. Our client was a 67-year-old cancer survivor with severe grass allergies. And when they bought their property, they went in and they, they tore out all the grass on their property and they replaced it with a beautiful, immaculately uh, preserved garden. So they had lovely flowers and, and streams and fountains. They had ground cover that had the scale and the appearance of grass, but was not actually grass. Was it was beautiful. beautiful. Yeah. And the city acknowledged this is beautiful. We're not worried about weeds. We're not worried about vermin. But there's this whole thing of the fact that we do have the city ordinance that mm. says half of your yard has to be turf grass. And so we sued. And we said, if property rights means anything, it means the government doesn't get to dictate to you that you can't use your own property for this perfectly harmless and beautiful use. Um, and the city fought us tooth and nail. Oh, by the way, the penalties for noncompliance were up to $250 per day that your city, that your property was out of compliance. And there was no up for limit on the fines that could be, wow. be accumulated. The penalties also included up to 10 days in prison 
per day that you were out of compliance. So by the time we finished this case, at least in theory, they could have hit our clients for more than $350,000 in fines and 35 years in prison. Yeah, how's, how's that for a bad public relations of the cancer survivor? <laughs> I know, right? Well, this, this is the public interest model mm-hmm. you know, playing mm-hmm. out right there. They were wonderful, wonderful clients. We had a great picture of, uh, of Jan standing in front of her house with this beautiful garden around her, and she had a big flag that says, flowers equal freedom. Uh, it was it was beautiful. Um, so we fought this case in first in state court, and the state court didn't want anything to do with the property rights aspect of it. And they told us to go back to the starting board in such a way that we felt like we could go ahead and bring the case in federal court and maybe get a better a better judge. So we brought it in federal court, and when all was said and done, the the judges at the Eighth Circuit Court of Appeals figured out how to get rid of the case without giving us any opportunity ever to even get the property rights question addressed. You, you, you think that our legal system is set up to guarantee that everybody gets their day in court. Yeah. And let me tell you, and I know people who are not lawyers may be skeptical about, you know, the lawyer saying this, we did everything we were supposed to do to preserve this issue. I mean, we did. We we went by the book what the courts had said about how to preserve this property rights issue for the courts to rule on it. And the Eighth Circuit just said, yeah, we don't think so. And because of the way they decided it, there was nothing we could do. Now, fortunately, uh, the city was so beaten up after five years of litigation that even though technically they won that case, they never messed with Jan again. Um, they they left her alone until the end of her days. She died just a couple of months ago, uh, and she continued to maintain that garden until her dying breath. Um, and so in one sense, it's a victory in the same sense that I don't know if you're aware, but after losing Kilo versus New London, the city of New London never tore down Suzette Kilo's house. Oh, Suzette Kilo's little pink house still stands in the city of New London. They moved it to a different location to get it out of the redevelopment footprint, but the city knew it would be a public relations catastrophe to show a wrecking ball coming and knocking down this little pink house that had been kind of the emblem of that case. And so this is one of the things that public interest law can do. Even if you don't necessarily win the the court battle, you may be able to, to keep the government off the backs of at least that client. So, um, you know, fortunately, uh, like I said, Jan was able to live out the rest of her days with her garden. But but that that case still eats at me. And it's one of those situations, uh, again, where it's so frustrating because we did everything as attorneys that we knew we were supposed to do. And then for the courts to kind of fail us in the way that they did is it's very, very disheartening. But that's the exception rather than the rule. More frequently than not, we at least we at least get a ruling on the merits. Um, and if you get a ruling on the merits, then you've got the hope of taking it up to the U.S. Supreme Court, which we've we've tried a couple of times, uh, although not yet successfully. But uh, but yeah, that's that's the case that that I I regret the most the way that it ended. Mm-hmm. I understand that I'll, it it could have been worse, granted, but that's the thing yeah. you'd think. You'd think, where's the, where's the sense in that, of forcing everyone to have this much grass 
as but we we're currently in California, and a lot of people oh. have rocks because yeah. if water is so expensive. So, yeah. Kind of- well, <laughs> so we actually we we brought this up a little bit in that case. Um, lawns are actually ecologically very unfriendly. I mean, they they require yeah. a, a ton of water. Um, they usually require pesticides or, yeah, or fertilizers. herbicides of some sort. And, and that's just, it's not especially good for the environment. Now, a lot of people don't care, but a lot of people do care. And so it's weird because you have a lot of cities uh, in, in drier areas or in, in more ecologically concerned areas that are passing the opposite kind of ordinances that are actually forbidding the maintenance of grass uh, in yards. And now we don't favor that. I mean, basically we think it's up to the, the property owner. The property owner should be able to make this decision for themselves. But it was absurd and, and we thought quite quite repellent that the city would dictate to someone that they have to maintain a plant that makes them sick just outside of their house, just because the city says so. Not for any other reason, but because the city says so. No. And even the lawn itself, it's it's just aesthetic. That's yeah, all. exactly. Yeah. So that that's a loss, but what about wins? You mentioned there are more wins than losses. So what's, what's one of the best, uh, biggest wins you guys have had? Probably the best win that we have had overall um, was in, in 2016. Uh, we won a, a major election fraud case. Um, so people, people hear about allegations of election fraud all the time. Um, it's very, very rare that you can actually prove it. I'm one of the few attorneys in the country that has actually proven it. So what happened is, is over in North St. Louis, um, there was a democratic uh, dynasty. Uh, the, the family is called the Hubbards. And they basically ran North St. Louis for the better part of 30 years. But people kept raising questions. Um, the elections that they were in when they had challengers had some very unusual features. There would be a flood of absentee ballots in these races, usually only in a couple of precincts. And although in most elections, the absentee ballots roughly mirror uh, the kinds of votes that get cast at the polls. In other words, if a candidate wins at the polls 60-40, usually the the absentee ballots will be in the neighborhood of 60-40 in favor of the winning candidate as well. When the Hubbards were on the ballot, they quite frequently lost at the polls, but they would win the election overall because of this flood of absentee ballots that broke like 85, 87% in favor of the Hubbard. Hmm. And so people had been raising these questions for years, um, but no one had been able to prove anything. So I get this call in July of 2016 from a trio of progressive African-American Democrats who were challenging the Hubbards. And again, the reason that they called me is because the first thing that Jennifer and I did when we came to St. Louis is we went to North St. Louis and we talked about the evil of eminent domain and the importance of constitutional freedoms. From from the very beginning, we planted our flag in the African-American community and let them know we are here to help. And, and we are nonpartisan. We are utterly unconcerned with what your politics are. We're concerned with what your rights are under the Constitution. And that helped us 
build a name and a reputation among this community such that in 2016, when these progressive politicians needed help, I was the one that they came to. And they said, we'd like you, you know, we've asked the Board of Election Commissioners to investigate this weird pattern. They've refused to do it. Will you do the investigation for us? I said, absolutely, I will. And so we went and uh, we filed a public records request to get all of this election data so that I could do this investigation. And they said, no, we're not going to give you the records. Well, so that turned into a lawsuit of its own. And you know, we may get to that one later, but, but for now, uh, my clients each lost their campaigns, but they lost by very narrow margins. And once again, we saw that same pattern of this flood of absentee ballots. So we filed a challenge to the outcome of these elections, and we said, there's election fraud taking place here. We're sure of it. We got in there and we finally were given, the courts ordered them to give us access to these election records that they had tried to withhold. And it was awesome because a couple of reporters from the St. Louis Post-Dispatch were in the room with me as we started going through all of these records, right? So they're, they're doing the investigation from a journalism angle. I'm doing the investigation from a legal angle. And we're able to kind of cross-pollinate mm -hmm. as we're going through it and discuss these ideas. Again, you want to talk about building goodwill Fantastic way to do it. Stephen Deere and um, uh, um, oh, why am I drawing a blank on his colleague uh, Moore, Jeff Moore. Uh, they're, they're still friends today. Um, but they were in the room when I found the smoking gun. And the smoking gun was not quite what we expected it to be. Uh, their, foot, their, their shoe leather work uh, in the community uncovered the Hubbard's game plan, like how they had been um, illegally applying for absentee ballot applications on behalf of people in the community, and then showing up when the ballots arrived in the mail and saying, here, let us fill those out for you. They uncovered a lot of that. But what I found was that the election authority itself had been illegally counting ballots that should have been excluded. So the absentee ballot laws are very clear about the information that has to be included when you are submitting your ballot. You have to swear an affidavit saying you are the person who's casting the ballot. And we found out that for a couple hundred of these ballots, no one ever filled out an affidavit. Um, and the ballots weren't being stored the way the law says they're supposed to be stored. They weren't being counted the way the law says they're supposed to be counted. And so in a race that my client lost by 83 votes, we had nearly 280 ballots that were very definitely unlawfully counted. And even though we didn't know which way those ballots went, it didn't matter because the difference between the ballots unlawfully cast and the margin of victory was so great that you just couldn't be sure that the outcome of the election was correct. And that's the standard that we had to meet. So uh, the court agreed with us. The court said, yeah, you know, given this, this clear counting of ballots that were unlawful, um, we can't be certain about the outcome of this, this election. We're going to have a special election. But here's what happened. While we were pursuing this in court, the Post-Dispatch ran a blockbuster story exposing the Hubbard operation. And when the people of St. Louis saw what had been happening, they turned on the Hubbards viciously. So when this new election came around, 
my client won by nearly a three to one margin. Oh, uh, I mean, Bruce, Bruce and Rasheen destroyed their opponents in uh, this election. That's and so Bruce, Bruce became uh, the state representative for the 78th district. He served for three years before retiring. And when he retired, my other client, Rasheen Aldridge, took his place. And Rasheen is now uh, in his second year as uh, state rep for the 78th district. So um, the Court of Appeals ended up issuing a fantastic opinion talking about the importance of confidence in our elections. And, and they talked about why it is so important that we make sure that our election laws are stringently followed. Um, it was a wonderful opinion, and it's probably the best thing that I have done as an attorney so far, certainly the biggest and most impactful win for the Freedom Center in uh, in our 12 years so far. I love that story, especially bringing the media into it and their, oh, yeah. their blockbuster story, as you put it. That's fantastic. So, yeah, that, I mean, that story is still out there online. It's it's totally <laughs> worth reading for anyone who's interested. Um, yeah, it's it's a wonderful story. That's pretty great. I'm I'm curious though, with everything that's been everything that's been going on the past couple of years, have you gotten a chance to do anything with the Oh, we had a big win yesterday. Oh, oh yeah? are you talking about wait, what, go I'm sorry, I, I anticipated the question when maybe I shouldn't have. Go ahead. <laughs> no, I was I was wondering about if you've had any success with or done any work on the COVID stuff that's been going on. Because I know Missouri hasn't been as bad as some places. I live in California right now, so I know that, but we wanted to jump in on that in the early days. So here's, here's the problem that we face. Um, we talked about the strategic litigation approach and when you are dealing with, um, legal principles, even incorrect legal principles that have been deeply enshrined for decades, in some cases, more than a century, you've got to have just the right case if you want to challenge it. And so we were looking for just the right case. We, we didn't want something that was going to be on the margins. We wanted a really dramatic uh, overreach by the government. And we thought we had it. So in the early days of the pandemic, the city of Springfield um, told a number of businesses, you're allowed to sell certain items, but you're not allowed to sell other items. So for example, Walmart could be open for the purpose of selling food and uh, certain kinds of household goods. But if you wanted to buy a firearm or hunting or fishing equipment, nope, nope, you weren't allowed to do that. Um, similarly, you know, Bass Pro Shop, they could be open for the purpose of selling clothing items, but not hunting and fishing gear. Um, at the same time, the city of Springfield also told churches, and remember, this was the, the pandemic hit right before Easter. And so yes. a couple of the churches down in Springfield decided they were going to do drive-through Easter services. So it wasn't going to be indoors. People were going to be in their cars, socially distanced. The message was going to be delivered over uh, the radio. And so people in their cars could listen to the message. If they wanted to say amen, they could flash their lights or they could even beep their horn or something. And then when it came time uh, to serve communion, they had it rigged up so you could do kind of a drive-through communion service. It was all very well thought out Creative. and completely safe. Hmm. And the city said, no, you can't do this. This constitutes a gathering. I wanted, oh, I, I've never wanted to take on a case so badly in my life. Mm -hmm. Like this was 
the the epitome of everything I've wanted to do in the law. And I couldn't find a client willing to file the suit. I talked to seven churches down there. And, and to be clear, I understand what they ended up saying. They said, we're concerned about our witness to the community. Like we don't want to be seen as just disregarding you know, the, or basically it was, I don't know, I don't know if you're a Christian, but, but in Romans 13, um, there is a conversation about the, um, about the duty to obey the earthly authorities. Mm -hmm. And they were concerned that filing that lawsuit might impair their witness. So I, I do understand the hesitation, but oh, it hurt Mm -hmm. not to be able to bring that case. That would have been a winning case. As we've seen, like, you know, we've seen that the Supreme Court eventually started shutting down those kinds of COVID orders, especially as they related to churches. Mm -hmm. Um, So uh, I really wanted to do that. But after about the first three months of the pandemic, the city started to get much, much smarter, much, much more clever in how they were setting up their ordinances. And uh, that made them a lot harder targets. Uh, we did tee up a potential challenge in late 2020 based on separation of powers uh, because a lot of these COVID orders were simply being handed down by fiat, by executive officials, and in many cases, unelected bureaucrats. So it's, it is one thing if you have a mayor who at least has been elected, even though they have not been elected to make law. Uh, at least they are directly accountable to the people. But if you've got, you know, some health department authority who's never been elected by anybody and all of a sudden they're just making laws that people are bound to live by, that's a problem. That's a huge constitutional problem. Mm -hmm. And so we had teed up that case. But again, it's so important with these cases, not only that you have the right issue, not only that you have the right villain, but that you also have the right client. And one of the things, and I, this is going to be controversial for a lot of people, and I, I, I beg their um, tolerance just by virtue of, of, I understand what we need to make these things work. I asked the clients, I said, if you're going to do this, please refrain from posting on social media, calling into question vaccines and, and Uh, masks and things like that, because from a public relations standpoint, that's going to make this a lot harder. It's going to make the case a referendum on the effectiveness of vaccines or the effectiveness Mm -hmm. of masks, rather than the constitutional principle we're trying to vindicate. And if we're going to have a chance of winning, we've got to have the court focus like a laser on that constitutional principle. Mm -hmm. And in the end, um, the half dozen clients that we had lined up um, weren't willing to make that commitment. And I understand, and I support, I support their decision that they wanted to keep making those posts. It just meant that we couldn't really use them as clients. Um, and so, so yeah, we wanted to get involved, uh, but, but we ended up largely sitting that out. Um, and fortunately, uh, there have been plenty of other groups and organizations that have kind of picked up that ball and run with it. And, and there have been some very good outcomes and I anticipate there being more. I think that when some of these COVID orders end up in front of the U.S. Supreme Court uh, on the merits, I think maybe we're going to see a really good 
shift in the direction of the law. Um, I can't guarantee it. Uh, Chief Justice Roberts seems likely to, to side with the liberal justices on that. Uh, but I think that the, the core of Thomas, Alito, Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, and Barrett is going to be strong. And I think that we'll see some positive decisions for liberty coming out of this whole situation eventually. <laughs> the question is when, right? Um, that's that's the real question is when does the Supreme Court take one of these cases? Um, and we just don't know the answer to that yet. No, it's it's amazing how long things can take and how many things have to line yeah. up just right in order for it to work. Like you said, yeah. the one perfect case has got to be you know, the perfect client, the perfect situation, even the perfect judge, just to make things work. And... Yeah, yeah. And, and people also don't recognize just how long it takes for litigation to, to happen. You know, I, I mentioned our turf grass case, that was five and a half years, start to finish. Mm. Uh, we've got a government transparency case right now in Jefferson City, that we are approaching year seven. Uh, so my my client requested records April 1st, 2015. And we've already won it. We, four years ago, we won a judgment requiring them to search for and produce these records and they still haven't done it. So here we are coming up on seven years since our client requested these records and they still haven't even searched for them. Uh, but we, we did get some good news a couple of weeks ago on that. We uh, are hopeful that, that this time the judge is really going to hold their feet to the fire and make them do what they were supposed to do seven years ago. But, uh, but yeah, litigation can take an incredibly long time and not a, not a lot of people realize that. So sounds like you're playing the long game in order to make Missouri a even more freedom loving and freedom friendly place. Yeah. Well, and, and that's, that's the whole idea behind this strategic litigation is you understand that it may well take decades. There may be, certain issues that don't get resolved in my lifetime. And I recognize that. Um, but when they are resolved, oh my gosh, it's sweet. It is so sweet. So what, one of the issues that I have worked on from the very beginning of my career uh, is the, the problem of Blaine amendments. And I don't know if you're familiar with it, but basically no. from the, from the mid 19th century forward, many states put into their constitutions amendments that expressly prohibited the use of any public funding uh, in what they called sectarian institutions. Uh, what they really meant with, was Catholic, uh, but, but over the years, I, that's, that's just true, that's historically what they meant. Mm -hmm. But over the years, uh, it came to mean that you cannot use uh, the public funding uh, in any way that might benefit a religious person, um, even if that meant overtly discriminating against people of faith. So um, this, is, this is a really big problem for two reasons. Number one uh, is um, school choice. So uh, many school choice programs that allow parents to escape the confines of their public school system depend on there being a range of options available. And quite frequently, the range of options that is available includes, but is not limited to, um, parochial schools, religious schools. And so if you remove those religious schools from the equation, uh, it really severely limits the choices that parents have and thus limits the effectiveness of the policy for improving education overall. 
So that's one of it. But the other is uh, just a, a pure discrimination problem. Uh, so there was a case a few years back out of Missouri, as a matter of fact, where the state had a program for uh, lending money to help upgrade public playgrounds. And so a private organization that had a playground that was open to the public could apply for a grant that would then allow them to make the playground safer. Basically, they would put down a protective coating on the ground so that if children slipped and fell, um, they'd be less likely to get hurt, that kind of thing. Purely secular purpose to this program. Right. Um, and so this, this church that ran a daycare that had a, a playground that was open to the community, uh, they applied to participate in this program. They were one of the highest rated facilities for receiving the grant. And the only reason the state told them no is because they happen to be um, on the property of a church. I mean, it's just out and out. You are being removed from consideration because you are religious. It's because of your religion. Yeah. Exactly. That's a problem. And so the U.S. Supreme Court agreed. That's a problem. 7-2. Justice Kagan. Justice Kagan even agreed. That was unconstitutional. <laughs> um, but then the issue came up again about uh, whether these Blaine amendments that basically make school choice impossible if you're going to include religious schools as options. That question came up again, and uh, it was argued just this year in a case argued a couple months ago. And it seems pretty clear the courts are about to knock down Blaine amendments and rule that they violate the First Amendment of the U.S. Constitution. I've been working for this for 18 years. 18 years of my life, this has been an issue, and I'm finally about to see the fulfillment of it, and it is amazing. Um, now, if only we can get Kilo versus New London reversed so that eminent domain for private benefit is outlawed, mm -hmm. and if only we can get the slaughterhouse cases from 1874 reversed so mm -hmm. that economic liberty is a thing again, I can die a happy man. Mm -hmm. But like I said, the slaughterhouse cases, they've been on the books for almost 150 years now. Um, that's, a, that's a pretty steep hill to climb in terms of getting the courts to reverse it. So I understand there are parts of what we are trying to accomplish that may outlive me, but that's okay. Like um, our mission for the here and now is to advance the ball and to lay the foundation so that future generations of public interest attorneys with a libertarian perspective will ultimately see those battles won. So what does the future of the Freedom Center itself look like? You know, that's a great question. Um, one, of the, one of the exciting and challenging things about public interest litigation is you can't necessarily build the cases that you want. You have to wait and see what, what circumstances present themselves. Um, so for example, the Turfgrass case. I never could have manufactured that case by myself. Um, it just so happened one day I got a call from Jan Duffner and she said, hey, this is going on. Can you help? And I said, yes, yes, I can. Or at least I can try. Um, and, and so I don't know what facts are going to be presented in the coming years and how we might be able to use those facts to advance these constitutional principles. Uh, but what I can say is, is we are going to continue diligently keeping our eye open for just those cases that may ultimately help us move 
move the courts in the right direction on these issues. I think that's where having good relations and building good relations with the media, with the community, makes such a big difference. Because then when yeah. other people think of those, they'll think Freedom Center of Missouri. They're the folks to handle this. Yeah. And they yeah. come to you. Well, and, and, and to be honest, yes, but that also sometimes presents a challenge in and of itself because we are a very small organization. It's really just Jennifer and me on staff. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so we've got very limited resources. Like our, our annual budget is usually in the neighborhood of fifty, sixty thousand dollars um, and $60,000. And that's everything. Like that's not, that's not what I get paid. I don't get paid that. <laughs> um, and, and so um, we get flooded with people asking for help or advice. Um, I mean, scores of people every year uh, sending us potential cases. Like already, so we're, we're what, four weeks into January and I've already gotten probably on the order of three dozen potential case requests this month. Wow. Um, and it's, it's really difficult on a couple of different levels. Number one, it's difficult to sort through those, you know, because it takes time to look through um, the materials that get submitted to us and try and decide, is this something we can help out with? Is this something that we can't? Um, but also, it can be difficult emotionally because you want to help. You know, mm-hmm. it's, it's part of my nature to want to to help people well, yeah it wouldn't be in this really job really hard to be to have to say no mm-hmm. um and but so so for example i got this request this last week a guy here locally uh had a situation where he was improperly stopped by a police officer the officer unlawfully told him he wasn't allowed to record their encounter um you know a lot of unconstitutional things went down in this stop it is a good case it's a case that under normal circumstances I would love to take. We just, we don't have the resources. Um, you know, I'm, I'm completely swamped with what we've got on our plate right now. And I, it pains me to have to tell this guy no, but hopefully, hopefully we can help him find another attorney who might be able to help him out. Mm, I hope so. Now you mentioned, you mentioned uh, operating funds. Where does, yeah. the, where does the uh, money to fund the Freedom Center come from? Uh, we've got a, uh, in the neighborhood of about 100 different individual supporters throughout the state. Uh, some are able to give more. Some are able to give less. Um, we, we've got a couple of donors that are able to give us a, a couple thousand dollars a year. Uh, most of our donors are chipping in $10, $25 a month, uh, which is welcome. It, we can use all of it. Uh, I've, I've told people for a long time, if, if we could get 1,000 people willing to give us a hundred dollars a year, you know, so less than $10 a month, you know, that doubles our operating budget basically. Um, but because we are such a small organization, it's also hard to fundraise. Um, we've applied for grants and have been unsuccessful, uh, so far in applying for grants every once in a while, when we win a case, we do win attorney's fees. We won a case yesterday. That's going to give us attorney's fees. Um, but those are actually few and far between. Even when you win cases, it's always hard to get attorney's fees. So this win yesterday was a really quite a big deal. Um, and we're, we're hopeful that it's going to provide us much of what we need for an operating budget for the next year. Uh, but we'll, 
the, the jury is still out on that. We're not positive that, that that's going to be the ultimate amount that we get for attorney's fees, but it, we think we're going to be in good shape on that. Um, but yeah, that's one of the things that makes us unique as well. Organizations like ours that do similar work, there are organizations out there that have budgets of two and a half, three million dollars a year. They've got four to six attorneys on staff and they're not, they're not handling as many cases as we're handling. So right now the Freedom Center is handling eight different cases, not counting uh, in two days. I'm filing an amicus brief at the Missouri Supreme Court on a gun rights issue. Um, and so, you know, we just, we really do, we're the most efficient organization of our kind anywhere. Like you're not ever gonna find anywhere else a public interest organization with two attorneys, only one of which is a full-time litigator that's taking on that many cases. Um, and, and we're doing it with, you know, one, one fifth the resources of organizations like ours. So we're really, really proud of that. But let me also add, let me also add, I don't want this to be seen as a sob story. Like we knew what we were getting into when we chose to do this. And we have made the decisions and the sacrifices that we've made because this is what we're passionate about. And, and if doing the work that we are so passionate about means that, you know, we live in my in-law's basement in Audrain County, Missouri, I'm fine with that. And I've told people, if, if some, you know, if some angel donor dropped a million dollars on the Freedom Center tomorrow, we would not change where we live or where we work. We would funnel every bit of that into the organization and we would hire on some help. But as far as as far as our own personal individual circumstances, man, I'm, don't don't cry for us. We're perfectly happy with where we are. You know, our entire focus is wanting to make sure that the organization has the resources that we need to go out and fight these battles. You see what I'm saying? I do. I do. That's yeah. Very very commendable. And let, let me like... let me put in a plug. I've got the greatest in-laws in the entire world. <laughs> Bonnie and Leon Ziegler are two of the greatest humans in all of history. Oh, that's that's fantastic. I'm glad not everyone is so lucky when it comes to in-laws. So that's a true story. I am I am glad for you. But you know, it makes you putting a, putting this effort foremost made me think of what you said at the beginning, how ultimately liberty in the end helps everyone. Yeah. And that's why it's something worth striving for. I think worth what you're doing. And it's similar at VIA. We don't we don't get paid or get a salary run run just from yeah. donations, and this is just something that we do as volunteers to be able to help. Other and thank people. God you do it. Like we need people like that out there on the front lines. Yeah. Well, we need people like you too, because part of part of what we do in helping people, whether it's through litigation or through charity, is to also show, hey, there is a better way to do things than Absolutely. relying on the state, yeah. relying on the government. So Right on. Thank you so much for the work that you are doing in Missouri. And hopefully, hopefully continue to have successes. Yeah, sure enough. And we look forward to having you here in the state. Yeah, I'll be happy to come. So thanks so much for being on the show today, Dave. You have a great right, day. Thank you. Thank you so much for watching this video. If you like what we do here, please like, share, subscribe, comment, and go over to our website where you can offer donations, request help, help us help people who are in need.
voluntarily. And we'll see you next time.